Welcome to DMOU, Destination Marketing Organization University, the DMO Sector Podcast, and I'm your host, Bill Geist. DMOU is where you hear the best and the brightest in the destination marketing space, sharing innovative and compelling stories to inspire you to take your destination and organization to the next level. The format for our conversations on DMOU is elegantly simple. It's three questions and a bonus round. And this episode is sponsored by our friends at 26 Digital, a full service agency that offers integrated marketing solutions exclusively to destination marketing organizations and members of the travel, tourism, and hospitality industries. Dave Serino, Brian Matson, and the 26 team assist DMOs with developing measurable and successful digital marketing strategies through specialized solutions to elevate the overall understanding, strategic direction, and tactical implementation of impactful campaigns. You can learn more at 26digital, all letters, no numbers, 26digital.com. And now it's on to our show. Our guest today is our friend, Brad Dean. With over 20 years of experience in the travel and tourism industry, Brad assumed the role of Chief Executive Officer for Discover Puerto Rico in July of 2018. This is the island's first destination marketing organization that supports the promotion of tourism to foster economic growth on the island. Brad actually began his career in Puerto Rico, where he first worked as a financial analyst for General Electric, while also meeting his now wife on the island. Brad then joined the Rank Corporation as unit controller for its Hard Rock Cafe chain, and in 1995, he was tapped to open and lead the Myrtle Beach Hard Rock, which became one of the most successful outposts in company history. Three years later, Brad joined the Myrtle Beach Area Chamber of Commerce as its chief financial officer and in 2003 was named president and CEO of the chamber. Under his leadership, the Myrtle Beach tourism industry enjoyed record growth and the organization was named Chamber of Commerce of the Year by the American Chamber of Commerce Executives in 2015, while also earning full accreditation from both the U.S. Chamber and Destinations International. Brad serves in various leadership roles with a variety of organizations, including Destinations International, Meeting Planners International, and the U.S. Travel Association, where earlier this year, he was named State Travel Director of the Year. Originally from Illinois and sharing an affection for the struggling but soon-to-be-dominant Chicago Bears, Brad holds a Bachelor of Science in Accounting from the University of Illinois and a Master's Degree from the Moody Bible Institute. Brad Dean, welcome to DMOU. Hey, buenos dias, Bill Guy. I feel like I'm back in the day of Bill Guy's <laughs> radio icon. This is really cool. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of fun. Hey, before we begin, I got to ask you a question. Terry and I were on island last month, and we were startled to find that everyone, everyone was wearing masks indoors and outdoors, even construction workers in a hundred degree heat are wearing masks and you have the highest vaccination rate in the nation. You have no mask mandate. Why do you believe this is? Yeah, it's really a startling difference. And I don't think I realized it, Bill, until I traveled back to the U.S. mainland and realized what a distinction, especially when I went back to my my former home state of South Carolina, where it's a completely different situation. Oh, yeah. And uh, whether it's masks, it's the quarantining early on. There's two things I, I, th I could point to that I think are the reasons for this. First and foremost, you know, Puerto Rico was essentially shut down by the Zika virus back in 2015-16. 
And that was a pretty extraordinary event that really put Puerto Rico to the test. And so when this epidemic came about, there was no messing around. I mean, from day one, the discussion with the public sector and the private sector was, what do we have to do to get through this? And so anything was on the table at that point. The other thing that I think is interesting about Puerto Rico is that it has its own political challenges. And certainly there's a a very um, confrontational element of their political system but masks, vaccines, everything related to the pandemic just doesn't enter into the political sphere. That's not something they're debating or discussing. And as I think about in Puerto Rico, I'm getting all my information related to the pandemic from health officials. And I think one of the distinctions between Puerto Rico and the U.S. mainland is so much of this discussion is being centered around politics and coming from politicians. And perhaps maybe that's what shaped some of the behaviors. So in Puerto Rico, masks, vaccines, it's just not a political discussion. It's not a political statement. It's just something we're doing because we believe we have to. And, and everybody seems to be taking the advice and direction from the medical community more so than the talking heads and the politicians. And I'll add one more thing to it because uh, a number of the people that we interviewed uh, while we were there, we asked the same question. We went, wow, we have to, what's going on here? And we asked, why do you mask? And they go, because we care about each other. We're in this together and we're going to beat this and, and we're going to come out on the other side. And I would then say, are you saying that the people on the mainland don't care for each other? And they'd smile and they'd wink and they go, yeah, pretty much not. <laughs> and isn't that the truth about America, right? <laughs> One of the, I think, most impactful advertisements I saw run by the local health department, and I'm sure every state and territory has run ads and promotions, but probably the one that stuck the most and certainly hit me, and I, I still hear people talk about it a year later, was an ad that essentially showed a young man who was at a party and you know throwing his mask with his friends, just you know all care out the window, and then he gets a call from his mother, and his grandmother just passed away with COVID, and it just hits him right away that she got it from him. Yeah. And I think that right. kind of messaging really uh, got everybody focused on this. So you know, regardless of your political views, I think in Puerto Rico, the, the thinking was, we just got to get through this. We've dealt with Zika. Yeah. We're going to deal with this better than, than we perhaps could have then. And if we got to wear a mask or get a vaccine to do so, then so be it. Yep. Well, congratulations on the recent honor of being named State Tourism Director of the Year at Esto. You and I shared a bite minutes before the announcement. And you didn't give me even a clue that you knew this was coming. So remind me never to play poker with you ever, ever. Okay. (laughs) You know, I still remember that. (laughs) I mean, you were just like, yeah, we're going to get a couple of awards. I don't know. A couple of awards, maybe, you know, I don't know. Well, you know, I should probably apologize because, you know, you're not only this extraordinary thought leader and and guru, but a, a trusted friend and, uh, I guess, you know, for me, I, I'm like humbled to the point, almost being embarrassed by that recognition. First and foremost, first time Puerto Rico's ever really been involved in and recognized by NCSTD. So just to be at the table with those folks is an honor. Yeah. Secondly, if you listen to all the accolades that were awarded, it, you know, everything they're talking about is it comes from our team, not from me. And I'm a firm believer that as a leader, you tend to get too much credit when things go well. You make up for that by getting most of the blame when things go wrong. And Honestly, Bill, uh, you know, to be recognized is great. To be recognized by your peers is is truly 
you know, humbling. And when I think of the other state tourism directors, these are people that I admire, I look up to, who day in, day out make a, a difficult job look easy. So it was truly a, a milestone that I don't take for granted. But on the other hand, I'm, I'm not fooled by our own publicity or awards. At the end of the day, it's always about what we're doing in this day, in this moment, to move our communities, our regions, in this case, our island forward. So I'm honored and, and humbled by it for certain. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's really about what are we doing together and for our communities? And unfortunately, that humility has never translated success at the poker table. So you're still safe betting against me for sure. <laughs> okay. Well, first question. This has been an amazing four years in the life of Brad Dean and your family and the emergence of Puerto Rico as a top of mind destination. There are so many ways we can go with this conversation. But I got to start with this. You had a great gig in Myrtle Beach good money, a new 10-year deal that ensured your revenues at an insane level. And then you accept the call to launch a startup, Discover Puerto Rico. Why? Yeah, I can definitely say this was one of, if not the most difficult decisions in my life. I really labored over this one. And it, truth be told, I actually turned the job down not once, but twice. And poor Mike Gamble searched wide. I, I wouldn't have blamed him if he refused to ever speak to me again. I tortured that man on this process. I was wavering so much. <laughs> and I think uh, Mike would have to confirm this, but I think when I actually decided to take it and I called Mike and said, I'm in, I think literally the board was already meeting to move beyond and, and hire the next person. So I was probably within minutes of losing what turned out to be an extraordinary opportunity. You know, on one hand, it appeared at that time to be the most illogical time to leave Myrtle Beach. As you mentioned, uh, they were taking very good care of me. It wasn't a job without challenges, but my board had always been supportive. They compensated me very well. And listen, as a poor farm boy from the middle of nowhere, Illinois, I was making more than I ever thought I could make. And we had just locked in that annual budget of 50 million. The yeah. numbers are record-breaking. Our membership was an all-time record. We, I think we uh, had established a cash reserve of like $8 million. And Perhaps one of the best things at that time is the new mayor and the county council chair were both personal friends. So in many respects, you know, this could have been easy street, but I've just, my career, I've never done the easy things. And what drew me to Puerto Rico, I think were, were really three compelling reasons. First was the personal aspect. My wife uh, had a successful career, but she'd always followed me around. And after 25 years of doing, I think she wanted to go back to the island and be a sister and a daughter again, especially at a time when her family was really struggling. I mean, they went months without, you know, electricity and, and yeah. running water. Right. And so that was part of it. And I didn't win father of the year by moving my teenage daughter out of high school. But even that, I think, ended up being a, a great growing experience for my daughter and my family. So there was the personal draw. The second is, I believe, just like I know you do believe, and, and probably everybody listening to this podcast, that travel is a transformative tool. And Puerto Rico needed transformation. And I had this crazy notion that if we could go to an island that had underperformed mm -hmm. in tourism for decades, that had certainly not been well marketed, and I could take what I and others had learned in our careers and, and glean some of the wisdom from you and others that had been in the industry, use the framework of Destination International's accreditation, and build a brand new startup organization that we could become the vehicle of progress that Puerto Rico needed and truly be transformational. And I thought, you know, not only would that impact Puerto Rico, but this could be a model for others because just as you think about it, and you can remember back in your days in Kankakee, think of all those limitations that we often in inherit or encounter the we've always done it that way, or that's the way the board wants it, or that's the way we're structured. Or that's the way our policy mm -hmm. reads as a startup. There's none of that. I mean, literally 
Leah Chandler and I sat around the table and dreamed up, what do we want this to look like? What structure do we want? Whose roles and responsibilities align in what ways? And how do we want to communicate? What values do we want to aspire to? What's the identity of this organization? And, and so this was a really unique opportunity to pick the best practices we had seen and experienced and also learn from the things that didn't work, the mistakes we'd made, implement those with one single unwavering belief. And that is if we do this right, we can not only accelerate the recovery of Puerto Rico, and indeed we did within two years, we were already exceeding primary levels, but we could actually build an organization that becomes a model. And then there was a third element, and I know this is corny, but I'd be lying if I said this wasn't in the back of my mind, is my first job uh, was with General Electric, and, and I was in this really cool sort of on-the-job MBA program that GE had in those days, and one of my assignments was in Puerto Rico. And um, if you think back to the 90s, NAFTA was coming online. And this is where a lot of jobs were being moved to Mexico. And Puerto Rico had benefited for decades from a tax incentive that basically made manufacturing tax-free. But what happened is not all of the companies, but some of them, including the one that I was a part of, had basically just used that to boost their bottom line. They hadn't used that advantage to invest in the people in the community the way they should. And so what happened is when the tax incentive went away and NAFTA came about, a lot of those jobs were leaving. And one of my first assignments uh, as a young up-and-coming financial analyst with General Electric was to go down and figure out how many jobs we could move to Mexico for the sake of the bottom line. And when I started, those were numbers on a spreadsheet. But when I got to Puerto Rico and I realized it wasn't numbers on a spreadsheet, it was Juan and Maria, and this was their family and their community. And we were ripping jobs out of this place that we should have been growing. You know, there's always a, there's an old Jewish proverb that says, I ask not for a lighter burden, but for broader shoulders. And I knew that for me to grow personally and professionally, that I needed to take on this immense challenge because it would be an opportunity for me to go back and in and, and kind of this crazy, corny way, kind of right that wrong that I was a part of. Now, I, you know, at the time I, I was just doing my job, but I always wanted to go back and Puerto Rico and help create jobs instead of take them off the island. So, you know, I think the lesson learned for me is that, uh, you know, in this case, I took a big pay cut, right. made a big sacrifice for me and my family, but I felt called to do it. I believed in what we do. And I, I think in anything in your personal professional life, when you find your passion and your purpose and those two connect, great things happen. Even when you fail, it's enlightening failure. And so for me, uh, my purpose and my passion was to walk away from a great gig and a wonderful community to do something new, something different, but something that I truly believe was going to be transformational. And it also gave you the opportunity to take your wife back to the restaurant where you met every anniversary, correct? That's right. That's right. And and being the romantic that I am. uh, (laughs) And that restaurant is? The ever-famous Denny's, Bill. It was Denny's. I, uh, she, she gazed at me over that grilled cheese sandwich, and it was love at first sight, I'm, I'm pretty sure. So it's, um, you know, and I, some would say that's just because I'm cheap, but I believe in the sentimentality of that romantic connection. So for 30 years, Bill, we celebrate at Denny's, and, uh, you know, they do still have the 24-hour all-you-can-eat breakfast buffet in select locations. So it's a great way to, to you know, uh, feed it. your soul and your stomach at the same time. And, and, you know, of course, the other benefit, too, is my mother-in-law. My mother-in-law now actually somewhat appreciates me because I w- before I was the, yeah. the American that took away the baby of the family. Now I brought her back. So at least we're good. on good terms. Good. So you've assembled, and, and you talked about it earlier, you've assembled an amazing team that has battled back against 
hurricane damage, Zika, earthquakes, political upheaval. What is the secret sauce that keeps you all so upbeat about a destination that so many people had counted out? Yeah, well, first, I'm surrounded by an island of people who just don't quit. The the Puerto Rico people are resilient, and, and when they get knocked down, they just smile, they get back up, and then they give the next person a hand up as well. Uh, that's just the way they roll in Puerto Rico. There's a, a phrase in Spanish, no me quito, yo no me quito, and it just means I don't quit, I don't give up, and it's just uh, it's in their, their DMA. You know, uh, Nelson Mandela, I think, the one that said, your greatest glory lies not in never failing, but rising every time you fall. And I think that philosophy is just embedded in the DNA of the people of Puerto Rico. So when you're in the midst of that, it's contagious. And and I'm convinced that one of the main reasons we've been able to withstand so much adversity, some of it nature-made, some of it man-made, has to do with how we hired. And as much as I wish I could take credit for this as a bold visionary leadership tactic, it was really the product of a very practical step that we took literally from day one. I was employee number one, Leah Chandler, our chief marketing officer was employee number two. And our CMO, uh, Alma Pedrosa, came from the Meet Puerto Rico organization that preceded us. She was employee number three. And our first challenge was to build a team. And we anticipated a couple of significant challenges. First, we'd heard about the brain drain, all of the talented young professionals who had left the island of Puerto Rico and gone to the mainland after Hurricane Maria. So we knew right away that hiring talent was going to be a challenge and we had to look far and wide to find the best talent we could find and we just simply agreed from day one we're not going to settle on second best because if we're going to do this we're going to do it right and we got to have the top talent so we we made this a a, a focus and a, a top priority secondly we knew that if we're going to be transformative we needed people who were all in 100 percent for the mission for the right reasons and of course you know once the startup you have to do this. But I think even for an existing organization that simply wants to improve, you've got to make talent selection and recruiting a strategic priority. It's not just a hiring exercise when a position's open. And if you don't have the best recruiting and hiring process, you'll never end up with the best team. You might get lucky in here and there, but you're never going to be top organization without having top talent management practices and, and recruitment practices in place. It just doesn't work. So one of the things I was very, very concerned about in moving to Puerto Rico, and you had enough exposure down there, you knew about this as well, is that mm-hmm. the politics of Puerto Rico. And I knew without a doubt that there would be some intense pressure. Politicians wanting me to hire certain people, board members wanting me to hire certain people. And even though everybody had told me, we're bringing you down here so this isn't political, they were talking about what everybody else thought political. You know, what they wanted would always be a priority. So we instituted a really simple, basic, but unavoidable policy from day one that's really extended through our first three plus years. And that was a two-part screen. And we held to this without exception that before I or any of our management team would conduct an interview, there had to be an independent two-part screen done by, at that time, it was a human resources consulting. Today, it's done by our director of talent management. First was skill set. You know, do you meet the basic requirements of skills? Mm-hmm. Second was culture. Do you share the values we aspire to? Uh, are you going to fit with this organization? We look for traits uh, within people. Um, that we knew we needed. And one of those things is we said, we need people that have overcome adversity who had turned stumbling blocks into stepping stones. And of course, I had no idea the number of stepping stones that we would have to, to turn over, but I knew there would be some adversity and some challenges coming back from what you know was at that time the worst natural disaster in the history of the United States. And so I knew we needed 
talented, passionate people who'd been knocked down a few times and got right back up. So as I look back, I realize now that it's really no surprise that our team has responded so admirably to adversity. They'd experienced this, whether in their personal lives or professional lives. So this was just simply the next challenge. And for me, the lesson learned is the power of hiring for culture. Now, admittedly, it might seem a little simpler to do that when you're a startup, but even if you're a, a young leader and you're managing two people or just setting out in your career, maybe you're managing a division or department or work team, you can do the exact same thing. You determine what values you aspire to as a team or an organization, what is the culture that you're aiming for, and you make that a priority in your talent recruitment and management. And, and I got to say, Bill, um, even throughout the pandemic, it's pretty rare that I ever have to sit down and, and ask our team to do something. I end up being, uh, the CEO for me is really chief encouragement officer because I've got so many people that are so focused on the mission. They're so passionate about what we're doing and they know that adversity is just part of the deal. It comes with the territory. So they're all in from the start. And so my job really becomes one of encouraging them, of, of removing obstacles and giving them the resources to do what they're great at doing. And I, I think that's a big reason why we've been able to sort of roll with the punches and we see the waves coming. We just don't let them uh, take us down. Yeah. You know, in our work with other DMOs across the Americas, there are obviously two kind of competing philosophies, if you will. You know, one is we need somebody who knows and who comes from the area. And then there's the other side that says we need talent regardless of where they come from. So interestingly, I think it's probably even more pronounced when we go to Puerto Rico as an island that there's got to be a pressure, as you said, to hire local. And yet you've hired a lot of people that are not Puerto Rican, Leah, Liz. These are people that came from the heartland of America and yet are bringing their talent to Puerto Rico. How do you balance that? Oh, hey, let me tell you, I might have had some experience in the island, but when you look at me and listen to me, there's nobody that speaks outsider more than me. So <laughs> nobody gives me any credit for, for having that, that connection, I don't think, other than maybe our team and our board. You know, the first thing is, again, I go back to the point we hired for culture and value. So it, it didn't matter where you were come from or what your home language was. You had to get that. Secondly, um, because we were a startup, there were certain positions we knew we needed right away. They had to pack a punch from day one. Uh, Liz Mabe is an absolute rock star in our industry, and we knew that she could come in and just own and manage the digital accumulation and lead the building of a uh, leading website. And so we looked for that. And because you know Puerto Rico really hadn't had a DMO, there wasn't a lot of talent to pull from that had that experience. So there were certain positions where we said experience trumps uh, all the other requirements. But the other side of that, Bill, is that um, we had to recognize that at the end of the day, we're storytellers. And part of our story in Puerto Rico is certainly not just telling about the beautiful beaches. As Leah likes to say, you know, Puerto Rico saying it has beautiful beaches is like Vegas saying we've got great casinos. We had to tell the world about the rich, vibrant culture and the history, you know, the art, the music, the, the gastronomy. And that's something you have to have lived and experienced on island. Yeah. So we tried to make certain that when we were hiring, every department, every team had a strong presence of local talent, that that was just part of their upbringing and their their background. And then the people that were not from Puerto Rico, we made certain 
without exception and without any reservation or doubt that they could assimilate themselves into the culture. So for Liz, you know, she's sitting in St. Louis, Missouri, but she's got to become Puerto Rican in some way, right? She's got to really uh, assimilate to that. Uh, Deborah Cohen's probably one of the best hires that I've ever made. And I, I credit Leah because she had worked with Leah and she'd also worked with some of our team who came from the Memphis organization. And Deborah had been in the sales world for meetings and conventions, but she'd also been in marketing. And we wanted a person with that specialty. But Deborah ended up hiring two local talents that really kind of balanced her limited knowledge and familiarity with Puerto Rico. So part of it was recognizing what we needed to do internally to balance that. And then ultimately, and I think this is where a lot of destination organizations get held up or run into maybe the, the brick wall, is when you have that tough discussion with your stakeholders. And here's ultimately how we handle that discussion. We said, look, if we do our jobs right, we're going to create thousands of jobs. So let's not focus on this one particular job we're talking about today. Let's all agree that the challenge is for us to be as good as we can possibly be. And let's also recognize just having the best person on our island doing this job doesn't make us the best in our industry. If we really want to be the best in our industry, then we've got to go out and hire the best. I mean, can you imagine if the Los Angeles Lakers said, we really want to win a world championship, but you know, LeBron's from Ohio and this is LA and he doesn't know California. I mean, you know, who would make that decision in the real world? But oftentimes in DMOs, I think we let that first pushback stop us when really we should challenge our stakeholders to say, isn't this really about us being the best possible organization we can be? And if it is, then we're certainly going to hire some local talent. But where we can find that rock star employee that can learn the local culture, that can become a part of the team, but yet they lift us immediately with their talent, their skills, and their potential, that's still a winning equation, even in this environment. So uh, I don't think it's all one or all the other. I think it's certainly a balance. But I think you have to keep uh, the, the ultimate goal of mine, and that is you're building a team that's going to create dynamic environment and great results, but you only do that by getting top talent that can embrace the mission. And sometimes those people come from within your community, and sometimes they're living outside. Yeah, and I, I got to compliment you for having that balancing act. You're totally engaged in that because one of the people that you assigned to us while we were on island is your IT director, Hafet. And yet, for an IT guy, he's got all the stories. You think of the IT guy as, you know, ensconced in some back room, you know, doing all of his stuff. And the guy is just such a storyteller about the Puerto Rican experience. And I think that's the beauty. And I think that you've you've done that masterfully. Well, and, and you see this throughout our industry. I mean, Hafet is a great... IT leader, but he's into engagement and he loves the organization. He bought into our mission, perfect fit for our culture and values. But you know who we modeled Hafet after is Charles Jeffers. Yeah. I mean, Charles was a great IT leader in Atlanta, right. went on to do some really good work for Destinations International. He's now the CEO of the Bermuda Tourism Authority. And so if you look within our industry, there are so many people who uh, went down one path and then ended up in another. And can you imagine anybody ever saying, well, we don't want to hire Charles Jeffers because you know, he manages computers, just like we would never say, gosh, we're not going to put Hafed out there. You know, he's, a, he's an IT guy. So I think those stories are out there. Those personalities in our teams are out there. Uh, but you have to be bold and courageous enough to have that conversation and never, ever lose sight of this. Those stakeholders that are challenging you on where you're going to hire from 
are going to be the first ones that are going to criticize you when the results aren't there. So, you know, this is where we as leaders have to stand up and remind them that it's not about the mailing address of the person we're hiring. In most cases, it's about what's best for the organization. And ultimately, you know, in our case, the people we hired who were not from Puerto Rico had to demonstrate uh, early on that they were going to be able to assimilate and sort of become, you know, quasi Puerto Ricans. And they might live in St. Louis or Arlington, Virginia or Fort Lauderdale, Florida, but they had to assimilate to the team, the culture and really become sort of transplanted Puerto Ricans, at least in their professional ideology. Yeah. So third question, last month you were nominated for five Emmys for your work on an amazing video called Sounds Like Puerto Rico. So tell us about how Discover created such an amazing production. This is a great example of following your mission with passion and not letting the constraints that we all face get in the way of great results. When the pandemic hit, none of us knew how long this was going to last. I was convinced it was probably a few weeks, maybe two or three months. Certainly didn't think we'd be talking about it in 2021 and going into 2022. And so we recognized a couple of things. Number one, that our recovery in Puerto Rico post Hurricane Maria and post Zika had already been underway. 2019 was a record year, and we just were not going to cede that to anything, pandemic or otherwise. We couldn't afford to lose that momentum. So our mindset was that COVID, no matter how long it lasts, it might press the pause button on our recovery, but we are not going to let this press the stop button. We just had too many good things underway, and we couldn't let all that work go to waste. And so we committed early on, for as long as the travel was going to stop, that our role was to keep the brand of Puerto Rico fresh and top of mind. And the longer the pandemic evolved, the more we just figured, and this is, I think, common sense to a certain degree, that the, the more demand's going to pent up. The longer we're all stuck at home and can't travel, the more we're going to want to travel. Not rocket science here. The second thing is, like everybody else in the industry, we knew we were strapped. We knew we had to treat every expenditure uh, like our life depended on it, because in some degrees, our livelihood did. Mm -hmm. And so we knew that lacking the funding we just simply said, take all of those good ideas that cost money and let's just put them on the shelf because we can't do them. We're not going to limit ourselves by that. Let's just come up with ideas that will cost little or nothing, but will allow us to keep the brand top of mind. And it was sort of liberating in this sense is that as marketers, we're very focused on results and as sales professionals, we're very focused on results. But we told our team, there's going to be no visitation to speak of. There's going to be no leads booking right now. So let's not focus on those traditional KPIs that drive a lot of our behaviors. Let's just focus on what can we do to keep the brand of Puerto Rico fresh and top of mind without spending a lot of money. That's it. That's all we're going to focus on right now. And hey, eventually some of these ideas might require or attract a bigger budget, but it's not needed. And if you go back in time, Bill, and look in just about any industry, you identify a novel, groundbreaking innovation. It usually starts with someone who sees an opportunity that others have either ignored, overlooked, or just simply never considered. Now, it might need a budget at some point, but most great novel, groundbreaking you know, accomplishments don't start with a big budget. They start with a great idea. So we don't throw it our team. Just let's look for great ideas. And as always, we're guided by the research. And I got to give a shout out to 
you know, some of the people you've had on the, the podcast, you know, Aaron Francis Cummings from Destination Analyst, uh, Amir from Longwoods, companies like uh, Tourism Economics and MMGY and Miles, who have been so generous and consistently present with the research, we became intently aware of everything those researchers were telling us about trends and desires of people who wanted to travel. So our in-house team came up with the idea of sounds like Puerto Rico. And at first, when you think about Puerto Rico, you think of the sites, right? The vivid, colorful, fun imagery of Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. But as marketers, we often overlook the sense of hearing. And sounds are constantly around us. And our team recognized that the sounds of Puerto Rico offer kind of an extraordinary differentiating point that are both appealing, but also a direct extension of our brand. So the jargon, you know, often referred to as Spanglish, which kind of reflects the island's historical heritage that comes from both Spanish, African, and Indian roots. Uh, the music of Puerto Rico, from salsa to reggaeton, which are fun and inviting and uniquely Puerto Rican. And the sounds of nature, from the rainforest to the ocean to this tiny little coquille is this the, the tiny little creature that sings this amazing symphony every night. So the team said, you know, we should celebrate the sounds and sort of connect that to the culture and the experiences of Puerto Rico. And while the concept was perfectly on brand, it came at a time when many of us were sheltered at home, binging on Netflix, anxiously awaiting that first trip. Mm -hmm. So what we delivered was this sort of fun, informative and compelling kind of docu-series type production that leaves you with a greater appreciation of Puerto Rico's rich, vibrant culture amidst the stunning visual beauty of the island. But it also takes time to weave in the sounds of Puerto Rico in a way that you just you can't do in a tweet or an Instagram post or a 30 second TV spot. And I think what makes me most proud of this is that it was done entirely in house. Our Chief Marketing Officer Leah Chandler helped shape and develop the concept. Our multimedia director, JP Polo, and his two person team of content creators, uh, Darlene Emanuel, who, by the way, is a DI 30 under 30 honoree, you know, brought this to production. The host in the show, Davalin and Jose, are both Discover Puerto Rico staff. And the, the digital delivery was led by Liz Mabe and, and her team, the writing, editing, coordination, promotion. All of that was done in-house with a little bit of assistance from our agency partners. So as you mentioned, we've been nominated for five Emmys, and all of that started from a team who understood their mission, who were tasked with coming up with big ideas that didn't require a budget. And in this instance, instead of creating a new campaign or a new strategy, simply look for a story that was untold, this amazing, inspiring, alluring sounds of Puerto Rico told in full color. And I'm confident we're going to win at least one Emmy. But to me, the great thing about this was that it elevated the brand and reached an audience that perhaps was not thinking of Puerto Rico at a time when we wanted everybody to be thinking of Puerto Rico and when they needed to be inspired by travel. And so whether or not we, you know, when one Emmy or five Emmys, uh, the fact that our team in-house was able to come up with this idea simply by breaking free of the, the usual clutter and limitations and just trying to think, not just outside the box, but think about what do we have at our disposal that doesn't require a lot of resources. Yeah. And I got to say that this is the way you all think. I think it must have been within the month where everything shut down in March of 2020, you were doing online salsa classes and mixology classes and just keeping the concept of Puerto Rico alive. We saw in that very, very early the opportunities. And I'm sure that you inspired a lot of DMOs to do a lot of the things outside of the box that they did. But you were one of the very first to say, yeah, okay, we're not traveling, but you can still experience Puerto Rico. Yeah, I think one of the worst things that we as leaders do is not let our team just create. Yeah. I as CEO am not going to come up with those ideas. 
but sometimes your team, they need permission, break a few rules. And one of the things we've tried to inspire in our culture is it's okay to make some mistakes. If you're not making some mistakes along the way, you're not trying enough. And what's amazing to me is when you hire passionate, talented people and tell them it's okay to make a few mistakes. We're not going to make fatal mistakes, but we're going to make a few, but be bold, be passionate, and let's be willing to be a little vulnerable and try something different. Some great ideas come out of that. And, you know, as I look back, Bill, even the ideas that didn't win Emmys, the ideas that maybe didn't quite hit the level we want, we still learn from. Mm -hmm. So even when we're falling, we're falling forward. And I think that's the challenge of, of leaders. And, and certainly at this time in our industry, there's so much disruption and so much change and the pace of change. And when I look around our industry today, and I know you see this as well, the people that are really excelling are not the usual suspect. It may not be the people with the biggest budget. It may not be people who even knew were in the space, but because they're not holding to what was done before, but they're looking for what the future requires, then they're the ones that are getting ahead. And I think this era is going to certainly produce winners and losers. And if you've got a team that's passionate, creative, and you give them some latitude to create and innovate, you're far more likely to end up on that winning side of the equation. Yeah. So it's time for your bonus round question. You and I have joked several times as we prepped for this edition that you say that you've learned so much that you didn't know about your friends in this crazy world of DMOs through the bonus round. So tell us what we don't know about Brad Dean. You know, this is a little intimidating. I got to admit, because I've listened to I think, all your podcasts. I'm not the, I'm not the innovative rock and roll DJ. I didn't, like you, I didn't spend time on Capitol Hill like John Groh and certainly can't match, you know, Steve Moore, this rising TV movie producer and, you know, all, all of those things. Right. But, I, but I'll say this, uh, one of your recent episodes, when you revealed my good friend and really uh, someone's guided us so much, Billy Colber from Hospitable Me as one of the all-time leading Avon sales reps. Mm -hmm. And by the way, if you haven't listened to that podcast, it's a must listen. It is. Billy and yeah. Kenny were fun and enlightening, but I didn't sell Avon. But I will say, Bill, and I don't want to brag, but I will say that I hold the all-time record for one-day sales of men's underwear. It was, at that time, one of the leading national retailers, Sears and Roebuck. In fact, Bill, I think single-handedly, I claim the title of underwear king, although that accomplishment <laughs> led to a, uh, a quick career change for me. I was, uh, I was a student at the University of Illinois and a part-time retail associate at Sears and Roebuck, which, you know, of course, at that time was a massive retailer. They've since yeah. uh, downscaled quite a bit. And we were in a difficult position. Sears was starting to really get a lot of financial pressures from the outside and increased competition. And I had a mentor within the company. He was the department manager and he was going to bring me up. And I was pretty certain I was going to make my career in retail. And I had a plan. By 25, I was going to be a store manager. By 30, I'd be a regional manager. And someday I was going to run that company. And so he'd taken me under his wings and was teaching me the, the ropes of the departmental sales routines. And uh, my golden opportunity arrived at the most unexpected moment. My boss was on vacation. His boss was at a corporate conference and the regional director, a very high level executive Sears came in and they were under pressure at the end of the quarter to release inventory. They have way too much inventory. So this guy has a, a meeting with all of the department heads. And because I'm the only one in that department, I'm sitting at the table with all these managers. And he says, we've got to move inventory and we've got to move it by the end of the week. So here's the deal. Whosoever department can move the most inventory, I'm going to throw them a pizza party. And whoever sells the most individually gets a big screen TV. Now, I'm a college kid, so you had me at pizza. 
but but a big screen TV, I mean, I am all in. Yeah. And um, I probably should have asked a couple of questions like, do we have policies and guidelines to follow? And and I, I didn't realize he was really talking about moving dollars of inventory. I was thinking units. But I realized that the thing we had the most of that never sold was men's underwear. I mean, we had like a warehouse full of men's underwear. And uh, I had a rather unscientific but a study of certainty that I have observed that on the college campus, the bars that sold the most beer were the ones that had the two for one special. Mm-hmm. So in my mind, I thought, you know, two for one is the way to go. And if two for one is good, three for one could even better. So I went and found in the depths of a warehouse, one of the old blinking light signs that you'd see like on the side of a highway. Oh, yeah. And we put that right up near the entrance of the store, which is in a major mall in the area. And we had buy one pair of underwear, get two free. And Bill, people bought underwear, didn't even need underwear that day. They just bought it because it was there and it was on sale. And we had more underwear flying than a sleepover hosted by Calvin Klein and Kim Kardashian. I mean, it was underwear was moving. The, the warehouse manager just moved a pallet out on the floor. We were selling this like there was no tomorrow. And I still remember at the end of the day, we only had like eight or 10 pairs of underwear left to sell. And my buddy and I were, were patting ourselves in the back because we knew we were going to be eating pizza for at least the next week or two. And watching TV. Oh, yeah, exactly. Big screen TV. And he points out to me in the far distance at the other end of the store, he says, hey, there's the, the regional manager. And I look down there and here's the guy who had issued the challenge that morning. And he's walking very intently towards me. And I'm thinking that I'm about to get a promotion and he's going to ask where I want that TV set. Not exactly the way the conversation ended up. He um, let me know that retail <laughs> Sears and Robic was not in my future. They made a remark or two, I think, about perhaps my mother should have reconsidered, you know, bearing children and uh, pretty much uh, assessed my general level of intelligence at well below average. And um, that day was the career changing point for me when I left the retail industry and decided I would pursue another line of work. But I'm still convinced when I walked out of that store, by the way, with the store accountant and the human resources director escorting me out the building, <laughs> the, my other peers that day looked at me as if to say, you know, well done, soldier. I mean, they wanted to be me that day. They couldn't move their their dishwashers and their pantyhose quite the way I had done. So retail perhaps was not in my future, but I learned an important lesson. Always good to ask questions about policies and procedures. And uh, I also realized that day that uh, being able to market the value proposition is always the key to success. You just have to have a concept of what the expectations are of those around us. So they've never really formally honored me as the underwear king, but I think I still hold the title because I don't think anybody was willing to move that, that much uh, underwear giving away free, at least not in Champaign, Illinois. <laughs> I don't know why you were nervous about the bonus round question, because that's one of the best we've heard. <laughs> that's just fabulous. Pallets of men's underwear. I never would have expected that in the bonus round. No, well, it, it, it's not on the resume. It usually doesn't make the bio, but do you ever want to find a, a, a way out of a career? Uh, do something bold and innovative that uh, breaks every policy and certainly in that corporate environment uh, challenge the uh, the best of their intentions. So, yeah. But it all ended well. I think it set me on another path. Well, and it brought you to us. And so, Brad, thank you. You have been and continue to be an inspiration for us all. The uh, DMO Pro that I was heading back to the airport with after Advocacy Summit said to me, we can't leave until after Brad's session. So you made Myrtle Beach DMO into a juggernaut. You created Discover Puerto Rico from scratch. And I know that you're just getting started. So thanks for your thought leadership. 
in our world. Hey, thanks, Bill. And thank you for doing this podcast. You keep us all informed, engaged, and entertained. All right. That's it for this edition of the Resurrected DMOU. Tell your friends and peers this is where the best and the brightest share their stories. Thanks again to this episode's sponsor, 2-6 Digital, a full-service agency that offers integrated marketing solutions exclusively to destination marketing organizations and members of the travel, tourism, and hospitality industries. Dave Serino, Brian Matson, and the 2-6 team assist DMOs with developing measurable and successful digital marketing strategies. You can find them at 26digital, all letters, no numbers, dot com. DMOpros.com is where you're going to find more on our services to the DMO world, plus links to the Z News, our book destination leadership, our blog, as well as to links to earlier episodes of DMOU and the biggest DMO job board on the planet. That's DMOpros with a Z dot com. Executive producer of DMOU is Terry White, and this is a production of DMO Pros. I'm your host, Bill Geist. Until next time.